Hello! A quick note. The episode you're about to hear was released when this podcast operated under an old name, which was Pessimist's Archive. The podcast is now called Build for Tomorrow. Okay, enjoy. This is Pessimist's Archive, a history show about why people resist new things. I'm Jason Pfeiffer. Imagine being 12 years old and it's almost your birthday. There is almost no better time to be alive. So much anticipation. Anything could happen. And that's what a little girl named Annie was feeling because her birthday was like a rare constant in a somewhat unstable childhood. She lived in London, but her parents and three sisters went off to India for a few years for reasons that aren't entirely clear. Annie was left behind to live with her aunt in a nice big house where her birthday was celebrated in style. But then Annie's mother and sisters came back to London, and so Annie had to move in with them into a much smaller house. Now Annie had less attention and less space. But Annie was a good kid. She tried to make the best of everything. And hey, it was almost her birthday, and now Annie can celebrate it with her mom, which is something to look forward to. So Annie bounds over to her mother one day, and she says, I feel so happy today, Mama. Do you know why? I hope you've not forgotten that tomorrow will be my birthday. And her mother replies, I think that you have every cause for feeling happy on all days, Annie. And I should like to hear your reasons for greater happiness on your birthday. So that doesn't sound promising. And by the way, this story comes from a book published in 1864 called Our Birthdays and How to Improve Them. Because as you'll soon learn, birthdays were a complicated subject back then. Anyway, Annie's mother wants to know what makes a birthday special. So Annie takes the bait. Well, Mama, first of all, I have a holiday. That is pleasant because I do not very much like doing lessons all the morning and part of the afternoon. Then Annie lists off all the things she'd rather do on this personal holiday. Her friends will come over and they'll have turkey and plum pudding for dinner and fruit for dessert. Oh, and she'll get some nice presents, too. The mother listens to all of this and then asks, Why were all these things lavished upon you on this particular day? Was it as a reward for anything? And Annie's a little stumped here because... Well, no, it wasn't a reward. She didn't cause her own birthday. But it's the day she became alive. And so Annie says, isn't that worth celebrating? And then mom goes in for the kill. I think it is a subject for great and intense joy and gratitude that we have received the marvelous gift of life. But I wish to persuade you that this joy and gratitude might be shown in a more fitting way than by your method of passing your birthday. Then the mother goes on a very long Socratic dialogue about how instead of not doing her lessons that day, Annie should work even harder at her lessons. And instead of eating an expensive dinner, Annie should make some food and give it to the poor. And instead of having friends over, Annie should go find Blind Mary, who is a blind woman named Mary, I guess. She's just called Blind Mary in the book. Anyway, she should help Blind Mary walk across town. And as for presents, well, Annie definitely shouldn't get any of those. So that's what Annie's birthday becomes. And you might be thinking, what is wrong with this awful woman? Can't she just let her daughter have some fun? But don't hold it against her. She was just a regular mom of the times. A common disciplinary phrase in the 18th century, it was important to break the child's will, and this was the parent's responsibility. And obviously, this did not encourage celebrating happy occasions with a bit of cake. That's Peter Stearns, a university professor of history at George Mason University. He's done a lot of research into the history of the birthday party, and although what he just said there might take you by surprise, the next thing he says shocked me even more. Celebration of birthdays is 
a late 18th, but particularly 19th century innovation. Birthdays are pretty new, historically speaking. And isn't that so crazy? Because, you know, I always thought of the birthday as something fundamental about us. Like, every human is born on a certain day, so of course we would know that day and consider it special. But... No, that's not true at all. In fact, for most of human history, people had no idea what day they were born. It didn't even occur to them that a birth date was a fact worth knowing. So when the birthday party arrived, it was as new as a newborn baby, and it made the Western world very cranky. I mean, these were people of modesty, and the birthday was an act of self-celebration. Many of them hated it. They saw it as frivolous at best and morally corrupting at worst. The birthday, in other words, was the 19th century version of this. Are millennials spoiled babies? They were told that they were special all the time. They were told that they could have anything they want in life just because they want it. There is a little bit more focus on me, me, and what I can get. Today's moralists can't understand why kids take selfies, and yesterday's moralists couldn't understand why kids like cake and presents. Somehow, across time, we grow concerned when young people celebrate themselves too much. And so we draw a line anew. We say, this time, the kids have gone too far. So what can we learn about the fear of self-celebration by looking back at the dawn of the birthday party? That's what we're going to do on today's episode of Pessimist Archive, because there is so much to discover here. The birthday party was once seen as a corruption of the community, but turned out to have the exact opposite effect. So how was it opposed? Why was it finally embraced? And what does it look like when another group of people start celebrating their birthdays for the first time now? It's all coming up after the break. All right, we're back. The birthday party celebrates the beginning of a person. So to understand the opposition to the celebration of the beginning, we first need to start at the beginning of the celebration of the beginning that led to the beginning of the opposition, which is an overly complicated way of saying, where did the birthday party come from? And you know, if you go down the rabbit hole on YouTube, you will find a lot of people asking that same question, though they're coming at it a little differently. And so when they ask me, do I celebrate my birthday? And I tell them, no, when they ask me why, I then in turn ask them, well, you know, what is the origin of birthday celebrations? Where does it originate from? That is one of many, many videos from people who preach a literal interpretation of the Bible. And actually, Jehovah's Witnesses don't celebrate their birthdays, though I don't know if the people in these videos are Jehovah's Witnesses, but whatever the case is, on the question of birthday parties, these guys on YouTube all agree the Bible is a big party pooper. Right now, we know that in Scripture, there is never anything good written about birthdays. There's truth to this, actually. The Bible does reference birthday parties a few times, and the context is never good. For example, there's this scene in which Pharaoh sends his chief butler and chief baker to prison. So off they go, where they run into Joseph, who's imprisoned as well. The chief butler and baker both have dreams and want someone to interpret those dreams. So Joseph does. He tells the chief butler that, Good news. In three days, Pharaoh will give him his job back. And then he tells the chief baker that, oh, bad news. Pharaoh is going to hang you on a tree and birds will eat your flesh. And here's what happens next in Genesis 40:20. And it came to pass on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast unto all his servants. And he lifted up the head of the chief butler and of the chief baker among his servants. Then he restored the chief butler unto his butlership again, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. That basically sets the tone for birthdays in the Bible. On Herod's birthday, he has John the Baptist killed. Elsewhere, Jeremiah says, quote, 
cursed be the day on which I was born, end quote. This kind of stuff led the early Christian scholar Origen to preach, quote, no one is found to have had joy on the day of the birth of his son or daughter. Only sinners rejoice over this kind of birthday, end quote. Which, of course, leads me to wonder, why? The guys on YouTube all have the same answer, and it's some version of this. We know that from the pagan kings in scripture, the, the birthday is a form of self-idol worship, honoring self and removing you from the purpose of your life. And if birthdays are a pagan celebration of the self, then every little part of a birthday must have some pagan origin. For example... Now, birthday cakes were in the round shape of the moon, and they would represent the Greek goddess Artemis. The candles were on the cake to represent the light of the moon. Those birthday cakes with the candles are a direct act of idolatry. Now, is that actually true? It's, it's hard to say, but that may be beside the point. Because if you look at this not from a religious point of view, but from a historical point of view, then here was the message really coming out of early Christianity. No, no can do this bad. No, forbidden. That's John Portman, a professor of religious studies at the University of Virginia. And John says that if you want to understand all the birthday stuff, then it's worth rewinding a few thousand years and looking at the war for hearts and minds. Because especially as religions develop, they draw a line and say, this thing that we do is good and this thing that they do is bad. And to just be super simplistic about it, early Christianity was very much defining itself in part against the competing polytheistic religions of the time, which meant looking a lot at what the Romans were doing and saying, nope. People trying to deny themselves pleasures, the pleasures of eating, the pleasures of sex, in order to demonstrate to God and to the community that they really, really mean it when they say they want to follow Jesus. And the birthday may have been just one of those things, a thing that helped define a competing culture. Egyptian pharaohs and ancient Roman leaders did celebrate their birthdays, and some upper-class males in those societies may have done the same. But here's the thing. To our modern minds, the references to birthday parties in the Bible might sound significant because, you know, the birthday plays a role in our culture today. But back in biblical times, the birthday was actually just one of many celebrations that early Christianity would have been opposed to. It's entirely possible that to people from thousands of years ago, the birthday was just one more super random and weird cultural marker. No more significant than, say, this celebration, which, uh, okay, a warning? What you are about to hear is something you cannot unhear. So in the Roman world, an event of great cultural significance was um, the day that your son ejaculates for the first time. Ah, don't say I didn't warn you. So families would be very excited about this. They would tell everyone in town and they would throw a big party for their son when he could ejaculate for the first time. And now I know what I am most thankful for in the world, and it is not having that kind of party thrown for me. So... Anyway, the point of all this is to say, today's religious literalists may harp on the birthday, but the Bible came out of a time with many, many random celebrations, some of which did also make it into the book. I mean, there are celebrations of the new moon in there and about one bazillion feasts. So it may be a mistake to think the birthday is a particularly special feature of the Bible. It's just one of many details from a very old recording. Now, despite the birthday getting caught up in an early culture war, the birthday didn't entirely go away over the centuries. But it 
did stay very high level. Rulers and sometimes very important aristocrats throughout Europe would still celebrate their birthdays over the centuries, but it was really more of a political act. It was a way to call attention to their magnificence and for the unwashed masses to show their respect. The average citizen wouldn't have flattered themselves like this, though starting in the Middle Ages in Europe, average people may have celebrated a name day. It's something that many countries still do today. Basically, everyone's name is associated with a saint, and every saint has a designated day every year where they're celebrated. So celebrating them is sort of a way to celebrate yourself. But then after centuries of this, something new happened. The first known birthday in the U.S. was in 1772 for a young teenage girl in Boston whose parents were quite wealthy. You know, there may have been others, but that's the first one we know about. That's Peter Stearns again. He's the George Mason University professor you heard at the beginning of the episode. Now, we don't know much about this first birthday party, but Peter says it wasn't a seismic event. I mean, this was Boston in 1772. The colonies had bigger things to think about. A few decades went by and there were birthday parties here and there, but not many. And there are a few reasons for this, which we'll get into in a minute. But here was one of the most fundamental of them. One of the traditional inhibitors for birthdays, particularly for people born in rural areas, was you simply didn't know. People just didn't know when they were born. The UK government didn't start collecting birth data on its citizens until the 1850s, and the US didn't standardize birth certificates until 1902. So if you're living in rural America in the 1700s or early 1800s, which is to say most of America, then the date you were born on seemed about as noteworthy as the day you first ejaculated. But schools would come to change all of this. Once you begin to start requiring school attendance, which in the U.S. is state legislation in places like New England in the 1830s and 40s, this was tied to a particular age. So it becomes increasingly important for parents to note the date of birth and convey this to their kids. Now there was an actual reason to write down and remember a birthday, which meant people started keeping records of this stuff, which meant, well, now they had a date to celebrate. And around this same time, a bunch of other things in the culture were changing. More and more people were becoming at least a little affluent in the American and British urban middle class. And as the new middle class looked for new ways to spend their money, a new group of workers were creating a delicious new thing to buy. Urban bakeries began to benefit in the United States from the influx of German immigrants from the 1840s onward, some of whom were master bakers. So now you had easy access to cakes. And who could you give a cake to? Well, here's the most important change happening in culture at that time. It was starting to become okay to celebrate your child. Because prior to then, people just weren't doing that much. Families would have many children, and parents were expecting their children to be disciplined and work. But starting in the 1790s and going strong into the 1830s and 40s, the birth rate in America was dropping. It's pretty obvious to argue that in families with a smaller number of children, the opportunity to value the individual child, to pay attention to the individual child, went up. So innocent children contributing actively to an idealized family happiness was a pretty familiar theme by the 1830s and 40s. So now we had birthday parties. They were a delight, but also still a novelty. And that's why if you flip through newspapers of the time, you find all these amazing little reports of local birthday parties. They're just in there like any other news. To give you a taste of it, here's one from December 2nd, 1849, in a paper called The Steel Enterprise of Steel, Missouri. The headline is, Patricia A. Green has birthday party. And here's the entire story. 
Mrs. Verlin Green was hostess Monday when she entertained with a birthday party honoring her daughter, Patricia Ann, who was celebrating her sixth birthday. After several party games were played, refreshments of cake, ice cream, and candy were served. Guests were Joy Lynn Jones, Bernita Rose Moyer, Dolores Shelton, Kay Raggins, Donnie Raggins, Faye Ray Robbins, Faye Howell, Charlotte Bernard, Janice Piercy, Sharon Northcutt, Donald Heathcock, Trudy Heathcock, Brenda Clark, and Edith Pike. Patricia Ann received many nice presents. By the way, total side note, but every time I put these episodes together and find old stories like that, I am struck by how we're all such helpless victims of time and memory. I mean, did you hear all those names? Imagine being one of those people. You live a long and fulfilling life in Steele, Missouri, and then you die and you're remembered for a generation, maybe two, and then you're just a name that maybe your great-grandchildren know, and then a name your great-great-grandchildren don't even have written down somewhere, and your accomplishments are forgotten, and no Nobody speaks your name and you join the billions who came before you who are lost to time. But because you went to Patricia A. Green's sixth birthday party in 1849 and a newspaper kept a record of it and that newspaper was eventually scanned and archived by means you couldn't anticipate, then your name will be spoken aloud for the first time in maybe a full century by a guy using technology that would make no sense to you in a world that would feel entirely foreign. And I know I sound like Owen Wilson in Midnight in Paris right now. I'm having an insight now. It's a, it's a minor one, but it... But it still kind of freaks me out every time because... That's what awaits us all. Anyway, let's now turn to a different kind of freakout, which is the freakout that cranky birthday haters of the 1800s were having as these parties became more popular. A lot of their arguments were captured in books of the time. There were many, which we'll dive into soon enough. But first, let's go back to the book we heard at the very beginning of this episode. It was from 1864, and again, it was called Our Birthdays and How to Improve Them. As you'll recall, it told the story of little Annie, who was excited for her birthday, and Annie's mother, who wanted to take all the fun away. And at one point in the story, as they're talking about why Annie doesn't deserve any presents on her birthday, Annie's mom says this. It appears to me more reasonable that you should yourself make a present to anyone that has taken trouble with you. To your aunt, for instance, or to me, or to your nurse, as a little token of gratitude for all that has been done for you. Which is like... Geez, Annie's mom, get your own birthday party. But okay, what's behind this? The big concerns were one, children really should not be specially celebrated because they didn't really bring anything to bear on family or social well-being at this point. If anybody should be celebrated in the family, it should be the parents, not the kids. And as a parent myself, I can kind of appreciate the logic of that. I mean, when you go to a one-year-old baby's birthday party, you are really going to congratulate the parents for keeping that thing alive for a year. Now, here's another concern, as expressed in an 1855 book called Henry's Birthday, or Beginning to Be a Missionary. Children of every age expected presents on their birthdays, and many expected permission from their parents to invite together their associates on these days. Expected, did I say? Some were grown so bold, so Republican, as to almost demand them to confirm. The most important word there, by the way, was expect. This was a new thing for children. Children were sometimes actually coming to expect birthdays, to be sulky if they didn't get birthdays, to display what we would call a sense of entitlement. And this was particularly unfortunate because it put children in charge of something in the family at a point where these Objectors argued parents should be totally in control. 
And by the way, we should pause here for a moment to appreciate the perspective of many parents of this time. The late 18th century was an especially religious time in America, and many people believed quite literally in the concept of original sin, which means that everyone is born a sinner, which means that children were, as Peter puts it, born into a condition that had to be corrected. There was particular concern that parents had a moral responsibility to take their sinful children in hand, to correct their evil disposition. Adults had the benefit of religion and the conscious effort of repenting for their original sin. But children did not have that. I mean, remember at the beginning of the show when Peter said that parents of the time wanted to break the will of their children? That's what he was talking about, breaking the sinner. But something was shifting. Around the 1830s and 40s, most mainstream American Protestants had moved away from original sin, meaning you had this generation of parents who may have been raised with it and are now adjusting to what it means to raise their own children without treating them like sinners. The idea of giving them birthday parties and triggering all this entitlement and the expectation of presents, well, it would have still been a lot for people who still carried some religious objections. The birthday was too child-centered and it was too secular. It detracted from the idea of children's gratitude to parents, and it detracted from the idea of children's respect for God. And that helps explain this next little tidbit from an 1867 book called Eleanor's Three Birthdays. In it, a very proper girl named Eleanor must contend with a very bossy girl named Julia, whose birthdays are always extravagant affairs. The book says... Strange that Julia could not see that Eleanor, who denied herself daily, seemed always to be in the sunshine, while she, who was so self-indulgent, was almost always cloudy and discontented. Selfishness, like the leech, calling for more, more. It's a nostalgia for the way children were, or at least the way they were forced to be. And okay, here's one more from an 1864 book called Nettie Lee's Birthday. It features a different evil Julia who's bragging to the well-behaved Nettie Lee about her birthday party. And Julia says, I always have a large party, a children's party, of course, but young ladies and gentlemen, my sister's friends come too. And when the little ones have gone, I stay up and we have great fun. Last time I danced every dance. And we all know that dancing leads to dirty dancing. Now, this is how the conversation went for a few decades, as the birthday became more popular and seemed to chip away at the old standards of life. And then in the 1870s, two things happened to totally seal the deal. The first is schools started to celebrate kids' birthdays in class. So if a family didn't do birthdays before, now they pretty much had to. And then a very powerful cultural force started to enter the home, and its name was Ladies Home Journal. Which began to push birthdays literally every year with articles on how to do it, how to make it fun for children. And this became the most widely read uh, women's magazine, not only in the U.S., but in the world. Ladies Home Journal, leading the progressive charge into a brave new world. Funny thing, though, I went to find one of those old pro-birthday articles from the 1870s, and instead I stumbled upon a ladies' home journal from 1913. And wouldn't you know it, the narrative of the good old days had already set in. There's a piece in there about how birthday parties of the past were quite pleasant and simple, but today's birthday parties, well, they have, quote, four or more kinds of cake and not only white, but pink and green ice cream as well, end quote. Also, there's so much entertainment for the children that, 
The children's birthday party habit not only affects the moral nature of children in various ways and sows dangerous seeds for the future in child character and habits, but it also threatens their happiness through the danger to health which such parties involve. Think about that the next time you go for that fourth slice of cake. So, all right, let's take all this opposition and gift wrap it with a nice bow on top. Birthday parties represented a change to core values. It meant that families were structured differently, it reflected a shift towards materialism, and it encouraged a catering to young people's whims. You could imagine someone at the time seeing great, terrifying ramifications of all this, as if the fabric of their community was going to come apart. An indulgent child would grow up to be less giving and more expectant, create a whole world of people like that, and nothing will hold them together. Nothing will bind them. And so what actually happened? I was searching for an answer to this and came across a report published in a journal called The Advances of Consumer Research back in 1997. The report is called Lessons of Altruism and Egoism in Children's Birthday Stories, and it does a deep dive into past research on birthdays, gift giving, and how birthdays appear in the stories we tell our children. Some of its conclusions are obvious. Like, it says that birthdays became an important way to prepare children for major life events, and that parties help foster a sense of the individual, as well as each person's uniqueness and personal value. But, and here was the surprising part for me, it also found that birthday parties help strengthen the community, which is to say, the parties do the exact opposite of the thing people once feared they did. So, how did that happen? If you are invited to a birthday celebration, that makes you a part of the in-group. That's Russell Belk, a consumer researcher at York University in Toronto, who co-authored that paper I found. And Russ says that as he studied birthday parties, he came to realize that they helped define people's community. I mean, yeah, if you're in the group, that means someone else is out of the group, and that sucks, but... Groups are defined by boundaries, and just who is included and who is excluded says something important about the group. Which is as true today as it was in a time before birthday parties. But now, if you're in a group, then the birthday party becomes a self-reinforcing system by which that group can support each other. There's always a lingering debt in the celebration of uh, a birthday or the exchange of gifts, which are often simultaneous. And that, too, keeps the uh, group spirit alive. That uh, You know, I don't know that I've ever heard somebody describe lingering debt in such a positive way. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's a, suppose that someone invites you to their house for dinner. It would ideally be the case that you'll invite them to your house for dinner as well, but not the next night. This is the genius of the birthday party. Unlike other holidays, which only happen once a year on a designated time, birthday parties happen throughout the year, which means there's a constant accruing and paying of this lingering social debt. And sure, that's a pretty unsexy way of looking at our social ties, but debt does make the world go round. Our economy functions on debt, and so does society. The birthday haters of two centuries ago worried that individual celebrations would splinter us from each other, but we just created a system where everyone celebrates everything. Everyone, the group and the individual reinforce each other. I asked Russ if there's anything about the birthday that I was missing, and he said, well, I'm looking at it from a very narrow cultural lens, because the birthday party has largely been a Western phenomenon, tracking with the growth of the individual here. But in the East, which thinks differently about individuals and groups, the birthday party is still relatively new. A birthday and celebrating the, the individual as a part of that is something that you could see change within the last 40 years, I think, in India. Huh. 
Which means that if we want to see what it's like for the birthday party to be a totally new thing, we are not limited to just looking backwards in history. We can look at our own modern time, just in a different part of the world. So it's time to go to India. Although, major caveat here. There's just an immense lot of variation everywhere, and it's a massive place. This is Projit. Projit Mukherjee. And he's an associate professor at the University of Pennsylvania who grew up in Kolkata. This is an important point, which I want to stress as we get into this subject, because India is a collection of so many different languages and religions and geographies and traditions, and I can't promise a comprehensive study of birthdays here. But that's not really the point anyway. I wanted to know what happens when you start celebrating birthdays in a place that hadn't done it before. And here we have a modern case study. So, okay, first thing to know. Originally, birthday parties weren't happening in India for much the same reason that they weren't happening in America or anywhere else. There was a time when people just had no idea when their birthday was or even how old they were. There's a lot of colonial discussions about this. Like when we ask people, what is your age? They don't seem to have a specific figure. They don't seem to understand it. They would be roughly like, I'm I'm older than that guy. I'm, I'm younger than this person and that kind of way. The British eventually instituted a census, which forced people to keep a record of their birth. Though different regions of the country use different calendars, so that was complicated. But by the mid-20th century, at least the urban parts of India were becoming familiar with the birthday. The idea was coming from all sides. The British had introduced the tradition. Also, so many Indians had spent time living abroad and then came back and brought the birthday with them. And also, the birthday was just all over Western TV and movies, which was playing in the country. So people wanted to celebrate, which in turn created India's very own birthday backlash. Now, it took many forms. For example, there's the question of national identity. Birthday parties are seen to be caught up with like anxieties about westernization and deracination. It's like, you know, my my parents never did this. Why why are you doing it now? And like so it's like, oh, you're you're becoming very westernized. There were also various religious fears. Like, here's a fairly grim one. The kid's gonna die younger, so she's not gonna live long if you celebrate. Uh, her birthday. Other people were concerned that birthday parties distract from marriage celebrations, which is the real time when a young person is supposed to be blessed by their elders. And of course, there are endless other examples of this. Those are just two that Projit had heard himself. And also, there was a concern that birthdays just seemed excessive, especially in areas with so much poverty. But at least in certain parts of the country, the birthday won out. People began celebrating, and in many cases, it became a symbol of the wealth disparity that was building in the country. Projit remembers growing up and going to a school in which some of his classmates were super wealthy, and this one kid in particular would throw a total bang-up birthday party. There was a time when his birthday, they used to have a big house with a large lawn, and on the lawn they had actually built a hut made of chocolate so you could like get into the hut and break bits of it and eat it. It was large enough for like multiple kids to get into. Which, okay, let's be honest, that sounds awesome and also deeply unsanitary. But not all birthdays were like that, of course. Here's someone with a very different memory. My name's Mahatab Narsimhan. I'm a, I'm a writer of children's books. So when Mahatab was in maybe the fourth or fifth grade, she remembers this tradition in her school in Mumbai. On a child's birthday, the kid could show up with a bag of candy and give it out to their classmates. And then... Your teacher would give you a little bit of time off from, you know, whichever class you were in to actually go around to the other classes and offer the candy to the teachers. And I still remember, you know, when we were in class and, you know, doing something, you'd have 
pretty much every day you'd have some kid or the other show up at the doorstep with a bag of candy and she would offer it to the teacher and the teacher would wish her and you know happy birthday and and there you go so like basically the whole school knew it was her birthday her class knew it was her birthday and uh, yeah it it was kind of sweet but it was weird <laughs> Although, you know what that reminds me of? It's like those old religious stories in America from the mid-19th century where instead of receiving presents on their birthday, children were supposed to give presents to their parents. It's like a cultural redirection from both cultures. So there we have two extremes. There's inviting your friends over for your very own chocolate hut, and there's humbly handing out candy to your teachers. And what's in between? In India, the answer is a little of everything. As we interviewed people, we heard about all sorts of celebrations, very religious celebrations, very simple ones, very lavish and complex ones. And one does not necessarily influence the other. It's not like if you live somewhere else, you are looking at, you know, those photos and being like, oh, I wish I could do that for my kid. That's Smitha. I'm Dr. Smitha Radhakrishnan, and I'm associate professor of sociology at Wellesley College. And Smitha really forced me to reframe the way I thought about this. So first, there's that point she was making. She said that if you lived in one place but saw how someone else in another place was celebrating a birthday, it wouldn't necessarily influence you in the way you do it. And that's because people across India have very different ideas of what a good life looks like. There's a wide variety of aspirations and desires. So everyone is not measuring themselves by the same metrics. And sure, we could say a version of that about Western countries as well, but we're also much more uniform. I mean, every kid's birthday party I've ever been to is basically exactly the same, as is every wedding, you know? Which makes India an interesting place to examine what happens when something new like this emerges. Because when we look at people's reactions, and especially people's negative reactions, it's easy to see people pushing back against it in one way or another. But Smitha sees something else. So I would phrase it a little differently. I would say that it wasn't necessarily about resisting the birthday party, because um, only if it's pervasive, you feel like you're resisting it. However, if you don't think it's that big of a deal to begin with, then it's like, well, why make such a big fuss out of it, right? So the sense that it's a very you know, special, sacred day and should be celebrated, I think that belief varies a lot. The, the whole premise of the birthday party, right, is that this is a really special day that's all about you and you should be celebrated on that day. But I think the view uh, for folks, or at least some people in India, or most people in India, maybe, is that this is a day to be grateful that, you know, you're still here, right? And, and it's not necessarily like a huge celebration of your special individuality, but, you know, it's a day that you should be thankful and grateful to God for all your blessings and, you know, seek the God's blessings for the coming year. And, you know, what else is there to do, right? And there you have it. The modern day version of what we heard about all the way back from ancient Rome with their smorgasbord of celebrations and ejaculations that early Christians were rejecting. That's what we're looking at here. That, I think, is what we've always been looking at. The birthday party has always just been another option. Take it or leave it. So why would we take it? Why would the birthday party do what it's done, which is to basically come in and out of cultures for thousands of years, taking different forms along the way? I think the answer is... It's there when we needed it, however we needed it. This is what cultures do. We see a thing and we either say, nah, don't need that. Or we say, yeah, that looks useful. 
So there were times when we were just celebrating our rulers and times where we celebrated ourselves and our relationships with birthdays changed accordingly. When a culture transforms, its modes of expression transform as well. The thing it values changes. The thing its people want changes. And so rather than bemoan what a new kind of celebration means and say, oh, what a disaster for our children, I propose that we instead step back and take it as a useful fact. If some kind of celebration resonates with people, then it says something about those people. And those people can make use of it, just like birthday party celebrations created a lingering debt that bound communities together. You just can't anticipate where it's going to go, and maybe that's worth understanding. So now, extend that a little further. Extend it beyond birthdays. Extend it to other celebrations, to any moment where a shift in emphasis happens. Extend it to kids taking selfies or whatever else triggers our modern village elders to say the kinds of things that I played at the beginning of the show, like this guy. They were told that they were special all the time. They were told that they could have anything they want in life just because they want it. That's the writer Simon Senak, by the way. He gives a lot of talks and sells a lot of books, and that clip I played is from a rant of his that went viral a few years ago, all of which, I suppose, is his own quest to feel special and have anything he wants in life just because he wants it. And Simon was born in 1973, so here's a fun fact. Want to hear something that people were debating about birthday parties at that time? Here's Russ Belk again. In the 1960s and 70s, there were some popular child rearing advice manuals that suggest if you have multiple children and one of them has a birthday party, you should really give some things to the other children as well so that they don't feel left out. But that sort of takes away from the specialness of the day where you know everyone wins the race, and that can't be the case, that there have to be some people that are special and some people that are either left out of the group or are not special on, on that particular Day. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Teaching Actually, before children. that sounds exactly like what people condemn millennials for now with the everyone gets a trophy mentality. Are you familiar with that? <laughs> That's yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's not that's not I, that's not limited to millennials. In the '60s and '70s, people were suggesting what is functionally the same thing. Yeah, exactly. Simon Senek seems to think it's bad for young people to be told they're special. So I'm sure he'd enjoy knowing how just not special his own insights are. Look, here's the point I'm trying to make. When I see the history of the birthday party, both in the relatively straightforward way it settled into America and the more fragmented and complex way it's still settling into India, I see a world in which the act of celebration is just normal. The kind of celebration will come and go, and some will seem weird or funny or alarming or stupid depending on who you are and when you're living, but the very act of it, of declaring something special, of declaring yourself special, and of using that specialness to define who we are to ourselves and to each other, that is just part of being human. So who cares exactly how we do it? Who cares when we celebrate or who we celebrate with or whether it's on a designated day or if it's the way we carry ourselves through the world? Condemning people for celebrating in an unfamiliar way today is basically the same as condemning people of the past for not celebrating in a way we're familiar with today. And do you know how many people that would be? Do you know how many people Simon Sinek would have to wag his finger at and say, oh, well, their sense of self is all wrong. I'll tell you how many people it would be. 94 billion. 
for real. According to a very real organization called the Population Reference Bureau, that is the number of people who have lived and died on planet Earth between 50,000 years ago, which is when the modern Homo sapiens developed, and the year 1850, which is when birthday parties started becoming popularized in America. 94 billion, 94 billion people who never celebrated their birthday and who probably never even knew their birthday and who never knew that a birthday was a piece of information ever worth having. I wish I knew what they celebrated. I bet it was just as weird as making a pile of sugar, lighting a small fire on it, blowing our germs all over it, and then forcing everyone to eat a slice. But oh well, we'll never know. So I suppose we can just use the framing we have today. Imagine it, throughout this year, from January 1st to December 31st, all 94 billion of those people will have had a birthday. They were born on some day this year. We're all connected in that way. Whether we celebrate it or not. And that's our episode. You know, while I was working on this, my younger son Colin turned one years old, and yes, we threw him a little birthday party. So now Colin has something to say, don't you, Colin? <laughs> right, right. Colin says that if you're a fan of Pessimus Archive, you should... Uh, I'm sorry, what was that again, Colin? <laughs> Ah, uh, yes. You should share it with your friends, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and please leave us a review, which helps other people find the show. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at at PessimistsArc, that's Pessimists, A-R-C, where we're sharing the ill-conceived words of pessimists throughout history, or visit our website, Pessimists.co, which has links to lots of the things discussed in this episode, and also an archive of historical pessimism that's searchable by innovation. We also love hearing from you, so please drop us a line at PessimistsArchive at gmail.com. Email.com. And by the way, some people have been emailing us recently that have inspired episodes of this show. If you've got something that you think would make a great episode, let us know. Thanks to our amazing voice actors, as always, they were Brent Rose, who you can find at brentrose.com, and Gia Mora, who you can find at giamora.com. Our theme music is by Casper Babypants. Learn more at babypantsmusic.com. Pessimist Archive is supported in part by the Charles Cook Foundation. Learn more about the foundation at ckf.org slash tech. Additional research this episode by Louis Anslow and Britta Lochting. We were recorded by Charlie Culbert at DeGraw Sound and sound edited by Alec Bayliss. Our webmaster is James Stewart. And of course, thanks again to all the experts who spoke to us this episode. So the cake is eaten, all the presents are opened, but wait, there's one more sitting there in the corner being held by that weird goth kid who wasn't invited to the party. What could it be? Let's open it up and oh, look at that. It's praise for the birthday party from Satan. Because you know, we had so many religious objections to birthday parties in this episode. So we, of course, need to hear from the opposing viewpoint. Here are the words of Anton Sandor Levy, the high priest of the Church of Satan, as he wrote in the Satanic Bible in 1969. The highest of all holidays in the Satanic religion is the date of one's own birthday. This is in direct contradiction to the holy of holy days of other religions, which deify a particular god who has been created in an anthropomorphic form of their own image, thereby showing that the ego is not really buried. Uh, the Satanist feels, why not really be honest? And if you're going to create a god in your image, why not create that god as yourself? Every man is a god if he chooses to recognize himself as one. So the Satanist celebrates his own birthday as the most important holiday of the year. Satanist or not, if you celebrate your birthday, then happy birthday to you, whenever that is. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason Pfeiffer, and we'll see you in the near future. <laughs>